Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them. With your host, Emmanuel. Do you think all ciders taste the same? After listening to my conversation with Ryan Burke, head cider maker at Hungry Orchard, you might think differently. Welcome to episode 61 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. In my conversation with Ryan, we talk about what does it mean being a head cider master and how it got into cider making, the different types of ciders, and the terroir for bittersweet apples, the future of the category, and the path to innovation. Finally, we talk about cocktail making with ciders and food pairing. Ryan has been the driving force in exploring new techniques and testing the boundaries and place of cider in the beverage industry. If you want to learn more about what we talked about today, visit our website, flavorsunknown.com. So hi, Ryan. How are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you? I'm, I'm pretty good. Thank you. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. I'm really excited to have you as a guest today because it's really a, a different profile, you know, of a guest compared to, um, I would say, the, uh, the chefs and the pastry chefs or mixologists that I have usually on, on the show. It's really uh, great to have a cider maker on, um, you know, on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to do it. As you can tell from my accent, and we, you know, we <laughs> met before, so obviously I'm coming from uh, the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. So ciders really mean something completely different over there. So why why cider means something different, you know, in America compared to to Europe? I mean, the first and easiest difference is just history alone, right? We are really new at making cider, and there are some, you know, there's some historical references we can we can look to but most of the cider making that was happening in the US happened you know in the late 1800s early 1900s and then we kind of we kind of lost it from prohibition on and really only the last 30 years has there been any kind of a industry where cider's being you know sold so i would say in comparison to certainly uh, France England and Spain you know we're we're pretty new on the block and so while you and the other countries I mentioned have <laughs> centuries of cider making technique and preference and varieties. We're really just getting started as to what cider means to us. You know, French cider certainly in a lot of ways is defined, not to say that there isn't innovation. And certainly if you're in Paris, you can try some of the, you know, sort of, you know, new innovations, fruit ciders, ciders with, you know, ingredients other than apples, that kind of thing, which I would say is sort of more of an American approach to cider making. For us, for, a, for an American maker, at least for me, I've always looked to the European traditions because that's where the traditions lie. That's where I can find the, the bulk of the history of, of the industry that I work in. It's all just so new here. So yeah, we're, we're just really getting started and trying to figure it all out. Okay. Let's talk a little bit of the history here, because they were obviously 
you know, like a sweet, bittersweet apples, you know, in the U.S. prior to prohibition. So people were making, I don't know if they were making cider at that time, but at least they were, you know, the, the orchard. And so what happened at the type of the of a prohibition? So everything has been like taken out of the orchard, like all those uh, yeah. culture of, of bittersweet apples. The great story to tell is the prohibition story. It's partially true. You know, what happened is we had a temperance movement that was trying to push people to stop growing their apples for cider making um, and start to grow them for eating. And then you had prohibition happen. But while you had those those things happening and there was a culture of cider out in the countryside, there was cider drinking. Certainly it was European influence. They were growing, you know, cider apples for to the express purpose of making cider. But you also had a flight from the countryside to the city. And that all kind of happened around the same time. And so, yes, the trees were torn out of the ground. They weren't really planted again in any you know, large amount that would build, you know, that you could call a cider industry. And so with all those things, kind of the confluence of all of those things sort of ended cider's opportunity for, for you know, basically until the late 70s, early 80s. In the U.S., it seems that there is still a stereotype image that beer is for men and cider <laughs> is the woman's drink. So what mm. do you have to say about that? I certainly do hear that. But when you really look at it, and I guess I'll, I could just speak to the drinkers of Angry Orchard, since that, that's where we pulled data from. It's actually, it's really a 50-50 proposition. Just as many men drink cider as, as women drink it. It's an industry or it's a category that's um, open to everybody. It has a diverse drinker base. And yeah, it's, it's really a 50-50. So it's a, it's a misconception to think that it's just um, for women. Sure. And do you think it's because uh, people feel that cider is, let's say, sweeter than, than beer? Then that's the reason why it's right. more like a women's drink? It, I mean, that could be, could be one of the many reasons. I personally never thought that. So I don't totally know where it's coming from. And, you know, I'm happy to welcome everybody into the industry. So I'm glad that we're split down the middle. And on top of that, we, sure. we have a really diverse drinker set, too. And you have different profiles as well, um, you know, in the, in the portfolio. So. so how do you educate the masses about ciders? As you said, mm -hmm. it's kind of quite kind of a, like a recent, you know, industry in the U.S. compared to, to Europe. Um, so what do you do to, um, uh, to teach people about cider? Sure. So, yeah, from from an Angry Orchard perspective, you know, we're we're the leader in the category and we take that as an honor and we we do a lot to educate drinkers through certainly through tasting. We have our cider house where we see, you know, well, right now with COVID, quite a few less people, but in normal times, you know, we'll see sometimes 3,000 people a day will come through the door there. And that's an opportunity for us to trial cider with drinkers who probably just know Angry Orchard for our for our flagship products like our crisp or rosé um, or unfiltered but they and they come to see us and then they find out that cider is this whole world and they're tasting dry ciders and ciders influenced from you know from France from Spain from England ciders that have been fermented for you know in in oak or aged for long periods of time etc so that's one way is just through direct exposure to you know, history and innovation through our through our site. Another way that we do it is by tasting people out in in the world at festivals and um, and basically any opportunity we can. We 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 try to get cider into people's mouths. 
we also do you know a lot of online content um our commercials are generally really educational around apple varieties and making sure that people understand i know this is probably strange for you to think but over here it wouldn't be uncommon for someone not to know that cider came from apples they might think it's apple beer and so we've had we do a lot of work just educating people on the fact that hey this is comes from apples and once they learn that we can start to teach them about varieties and if they really get into it, then, you know, we will, we're talking about fermentation techniques and history and aging and all that kind of stuff. And I think as an industry, we do a lot of work, too. You know, we have an American Cider Association that does a lot of outreach to drinkers. Uh, we have a couple of different publications, not the American Cider Association, but there's a few publications in the U.S. Uh, one is called um, Cidercraft. And yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of excitement to pull people in and, and talk about what really is a very robust category with all kinds of interesting people doing interesting things. So yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of storytelling. You started to talk uh, some of the product that you have in, uh, in the portfolio, the, the crisp and the, the rosic. Can you describe the line of, of product on uh, Angry Orchard? Yeah. So our flagship ciders, crisp is our flagship, um, the, first, the first, first cider to be Angry Orchard. It's definitely an entry-level cider. It is really straightforward, sort of apple-forward. It does have, you know, about 35 to 40% traditional bittersweet cider apples in it. So that's a key component. So we definitely have tannin to build the rest of the cider against. It's definitely a sweeter cider with acid that's, you know, an acidity that's in line with the tannin and the sweetness. So it's really kind of the, it's just a perfect balance. It's, you know, lower ABV. It's kind of sessionable. It pairs with a lot of food. You know, it's strong enough to pair up against, you know, pork of any kind. We have it with cheddar cheese. Um, so it's a really versatile, a versatile drink. That's the flagship, the rosé. You know, s- similarly, has some traditional cider varieties in it. It is, you know, pink in color. It is sort of medium sweet. It's a little bit lighter than crisp. So at the table, it's, you know, meant to sort of be in the beginning of a meal, maybe with a salad or maybe with a lighter, creamier cheese or something like that. We also have our unfiltered, which is a little bit more like a traditional sort of countryside. I would say sort of more like an English West Country style cider. And it's not, you know, we it's unfiltered. We call it unfiltered because it has not been filtered. So it's very hazy and it's a little bit higher in ABV, around 6%, a, a little bit more bittersweet character to it, a little bit more of a like farmy fermentation character to it. And... Yeah, that's, you know, like crisp is is really, really good to stand up to just about anything. Even though it's higher in ABV, I kind of find it to be a little bit more sessionable. I think it's it's significantly drier than crisp. So for me, for my tastes, I kind of gravitate towards that cider. You know, that's just my taste profile. And then so what is the uh, the Cider House collection that uh, you guys have as well? Sure. So we actually, what we used to have, the Cider House collection, we kind of moved on from in the, okay. in the last year. It was a space for us to kind of do innovation and, you know, bring kind of like, I don't want to say higher. I always try to like avoid higher end when it comes to cider. It was like, you know, ciders that took a little bit more in the cellar um, would have some oak component, things that took a little bit longer, maybe more a little bit for the more for the table. They were in 750s with a cork and cage. But we kind of phased that out because at our cider house in Walden in New York, um, we're just doing so much new stuff all the time. You know, we bottle 30 or 40 different ciders in a year. 
And so that's sort of taken the place of that Cider House collection. And so it's really, it's been a nice transition because it just allows us, we only had three SKUs in, in that collection. You know, now we can kind of change it all the time. And most of that stuff's only available in New York. Sometimes it's, you know, distributed lightly around the country and at competitions or at some of our friends' restaurants and things like that. And very soon, actually, we will have a cider club. So we'll be able to finally ship that to most of the states around the country. Oh, cool. So we're really excited for that. So, I mean, you're talking about oak and you're talking about innovation. Let's talk a little bit. Um, how, do, how do you innovate, you know, when it comes to, um, to cider? What's the, what's the path to, uh, to innovation? Sure. It sort of depends um, where we're looking. When it comes, you know, it, there's sort of two different spaces that we're playing in. What the national market sees versus what we do at the Cider House in Walden can, can, can be quite different. And there's just different drinkers, different needs to meet. And certainly there's some things we do in New York that just we wouldn't be able to scale up. For instance, some of the apple varieties that we grow. So I would say some of the innovation starts in the orchard. We do have 60 acres there. In those 60 acres are, you know, 40 odd different apple varieties. We're always adding new stuff. And so we're always looking at new apple varieties. So for me, innovation really starts in the orchard. And then when we get into fermentation, it's generally about, you know, kind of how far can we take things? Because I like to do a lot of long-term aging and, you know, only certain apple varieties will allow me to do exactly what I want to do. So we'll do barrel fermentations, fermentations in big oak vats, big fooders, you know, we'll, we'll do things like ferment on the skin. We'll, we'll press bittersweet apples and then ferment sweet apples on top of the skins. We try to keep that innovation really close to the apple rather than looking at what else we might put in it. And we certainly do we'll, we play around. We, you know, we'll have, we have a cider, a rosé cider that we make with blueberries. So we ferment a blueberry wine, totally dry, and we blend it with some high acid and some bittersweet apples. And it makes this really delicious rosé. So for me, that's, you know, interacting with local farmers, finding what grows well in our area. And we might, you know, we have a cider that we sweeten with honey that has some ginger in it. In both cases, you know, the honey and the ginger grown just down the street from our cider house. So we sort of look at innovation in Walden with with an eye to what's local and keeping it as true to the apple or the pear as we possibly can. So even when we add something, which is rare, but when we do, it's it's a cider first and it's anything else second. So we'll, there'll be more like top notes or complementary notes. When it comes to national innovation, we look at it the same way, but a lot of the time we can't, you know, we're not going to age a cider for three years for the national market, right? We're not, it is not possible to scale that kind of thing up. Well, while we have done some wild fermentation that's gone out into the natural market, which is, or the national market, excuse me. So what, um, what does that mean, wild fermentation? Yeah, so we don't, we'll, we won't pitch any kind of yeast that we, that we would have bought from a lab. So we just let the natural yeast complete fermentation. And, and that's another way we innovate in New York is by doing lots of natural fermentation. About 75% of the fermentations there are natural or wild fermentations. You know, that's another thing that's very tough to bring into the, into the national market. But all of that stuff does inform what we do. And so while Walden is this place where it's sort of... We explore, we, you we know, explore yeah. do it, we, yeah. whatever we want to do. We're also 
working on new product development for ciders that do see the national market. So the same people that work on, you know, all the stuff that I just mentioned are also, they also have hand in what is um, eventually coming out into, into the world as Angry Orchard. So there is influence and, you know, we really take pride in the fact that we, you know, drive onto the 60 acre orchard every day for work, um, that we're surrounded by apples as we think about cider. And I think that really informs what we do. And so, you know, we might take things that go on in the national market will be more sort of welcoming to everybody. Sometimes, you know, some of the things we do can be, I would say, more like a, a an expert palate or a, a refined cider drinking palate. It kind of take it can take a while before you get to those next steps where you really appreciate something that is, you know, fermented in a barrel for a year and has little, you know, notes of microoxidation and has some barrel character. Some of those things, those nuances, it takes a little while to bring people into that, which is you so know part of the fun. You're talking about like um, the you know the the type of the barrel and uh, you know the aging. Are you even exploring? like the different uh, type of barrel and where they are coming from and then the different kind of woods and, for instance, finishing, you know, uh, techniques in uh, bourbon, for instance, doing at the moment? Is it something that uh, is an, an opportunity even for innovation for cider? Yeah, so we, we do a lot of oak work. We have a couple different programs. One is working with bourbon barrels. So we use relatively old bourbon barrels, like 9 to 12-year-old barrels, and we use the older barrels because cider is a delicate drink, uh, much more delicate than, say, bourbon or beer or even wine. And so the, the older the barrel, the less impact the barrel will have, the actual oak of the barrel uh, will have on the, the final cider. So we like an older barrel and we'll age, the, we'll age cider for anywhere from one to three years in those barrels. We'll just use them one time. What I really like about the program is we, we don't top those barrels off. So there's a lot of evaporation and microoxidation. And when the cider comes out, it's around 10 and a half, 11%. It stands up really well in the barrel. And that's kind of become our house character is this kind of a little bit of microoxidation across to everything. And in this case, the cider really it comes out with this. It's a bit of a sh like sherry character. It's almost like a Madeira. It's really a fun cider. And it's one of our most popular ciders in, in Walden. But then we also... Yeah, we look at barrels from all kinds of different industries. We generally stay with French oak. We have quite a few Calvados barrels, a lot of cognac barrels. And then we have some fooders that are uh, cognac. They're like 500 gallons a piece. And then we did just for the first time invest pretty heavily in some American oak. There's a Cooper in St. Louis who's making uh, fooders for the, the beer and cider and wine industry. And we did just get like an 11 unit, 700 gallon a piece, um, horizontal fooder system. Um, so it's like six across and five on top. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a knockout piece. And in there, we're doing all wild fermentation, all natural. We don't pitch any yeast in that program at all. So everything's a little bit, you know, it's very clean by our process, but, it, you know, it's a little bit, call it funkier. The bourbon barrel program is great and people love it. I would say it's kind of on, you know, it's sort of like cyclical. We know exactly what we're doing. Not much ever changes when it comes to the natural fermentations in the different types of oak. Um, that's where kind of the excitement is as a maker. So what does that mean being like a head cider maker? What, what do you do? <laughs> huh. Well, I, I really, over, you know, work with my team 
to be on the cutting edge of what's happening in cider. I definitely serve my team as an educator, creating opportunities for them to to hone their skills, to interact with the industry in America and, and across the across the planet. You know, this has been a, it's a tough year for so many reasons. But yeah. What one of the reasons? <laughs> no is I, yeah. Yeah, I really miss I miss being able to show people. Uh, well, first off, I miss seeing my friends, you know, in different countries and different states. But I really miss taking people who have never been to those places to see them for the first time. It's one of the, like the the high honors of my job is to, you know, introduce people to other great people doing other great things in different places. Um, those are those moments that change people's lives forever. And I'm, you know, grateful that I had someone to do that for me too. I take that pretty seriously. So I spend a lot of, a lot of time just, yeah, making sure that everyone is um, moving forward. I'm certainly looking at quality all the time. You know, apple selection and our orcharding is really important to me. So I keep very close to that. And then, you know, Angry Orchard, you know, we have our local orchards, but then we buy fruit, you know, in a couple of different places in the U.S. We also buy fruit over in France. Typically, I'm over there and managing, you know, those relationships with our um, suppliers over there. And then, you know, just kind of running innovation, always looking for new opportunities for cider. And then, yeah, for Angry Orchard, I'm, you know, I'm sort of out in front of the brand too. So you might catch me on, you know, a commercial or something. So I, sure. I do do that. I do that as well. <laughs> yeah. Or on, or on net Netflix. <laughs> yes, or on Netflix, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Because it is seasonal, because of the of the fruits. So, what uh, you know? How does your job change with with the season? Or there's no really you know differences in in the let's say a day in the life of uh, of Ryan throughout the year. It changes quite a bit. You know, our orchard obviously, as you said, is seasonal. So, between the months of you know the end of September through December, we're we're pretty busy pressing apples. Depending on the year, we might press apples into February. There are some varieties that are in New York State that hold on for a little bit longer. They're the high acid varieties like Northern Spy and Newtown Pippin. So we like to let those develop a little bit more in cold storage. So, but generally after the first of the year, we're slowing down from a processing of apples standpoint, and we're starting to get into you know tasting fermentations. We kind of we between the end of September and January 1, we generally don't really get into tasting anything. Maybe we'll, we taste and interact with our fermentations as they're happening. But once we, you know, crash them and, and put them into storage, we, we usually wait a little bit just to let them sort of come back together and mature a little bit before we, we, you know, start to bother anything. Then we're tasting really for the next couple of months, tasting, thinking about what we might blend new products we might you know develop what old things we you know old spaces will will fill back up you know existing brands and yeah that's the sort of the bulk of those months at walden and and then we get honestly we get really busy with with our when our doors open you know sort of full time so we're packaging cider constantly in, in those months we kind of take a break from packaging while we're doing the fermentation and then we switch to packaging that's sort of the Walden program. The National Cider program is running all the time. You know, we're always 
making cider and we're always sort of working on innovation for, you know, as soon as we get done with one innovation, we're working on the next one. So when we know what we're doing for 2021, we start working on what we're doing for 2022. You know, like I said, I'm out in front of the brand a lot. So I, I talk to a lot of people about cider all the time. I serve on a few different boards at the American Association, the American Cider Association, excuse me, and the Cider Institute of North America. I serve on both of those boards. So I'm always kind of in the cider mix. And then I try to get over to the UK, to France and to Spain once or twice a year. And that'll be, you know, visiting old friends and generally, you know, judging in competitions or participating in competitions. That's a pretty good, that's a year for me. And then I'm, I'm usually trying to eat somewhere. <laughs> so how did you get into fermentation and cider making? Yeah, so I, I'm from a little town um, upstate of where I am now uh, called Williamson. Williamson is um, sort of equidistant between Rochester and Syracuse, New York. So it's a little town that you probably wouldn't go visit. But it is um, where Mott's is headquartered. So Mott's Apple, Sauce Apple, you name it. That's where they're located. That's where the business was started. And so basically, Williamson is a the apple orchards for Mott's, the Mott's factory. That sort of changed a bit over time. But um, that's where I grew up. And that's what was going on when, when I was growing up there. And on top of that, it was also a dry town from Prohibition. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. And in 2004... There's a bit of a history of the farmers there making their own <laughs> cider. And sure. I was aware of what cider was at, at a pretty young age. And actually, one of, my, one of my best friends I grew up with, Jake Lagner, we grew up with a, a taste for cider. And he has since opened up a cidery in my hometown. At the first of, at the, first of the, he's either the first or the second cidery to open up there. So... It's cool to have sort of grown up with with somebody, and you know we both kind of went our own ways, and then ultimately here we are uh, back in the same place. <laughs> and so that yeah, that got me into into fermentation in college. I got into home brewing. Um, I got really into home brewing actually, and I eventually landed in Chicago where I I met up with a lot of other people that were really into home brewing, and we kind of got together and started this little collective where we threw these events with a chef. His name is Juan Kim. He's a chef in Chicago. He would cook food and we would all bring our best beer. It was sort of like a homebrew rave. Um, it was totally illegal. We'd sort of get these spaces and sell tickets and, and it got really popular. You know, it was first, it was just, a, you know, 10 people, 20 people, and eventually it turned into, you know, hundreds of people. And everybody that we were doing that with has gone on to become a professional fermenter of some kind, actually, they've all become brewers. And then me, the one cider maker, and one, the chef is is on to his second restaurant now. So um, it was a really, it was a really great group of people that were really competitive, and, you know, rifting on each other and always trying to up their game. And in that moment, I met Greg Hall, who was starting Virtue Cider out in Michigan. And uh, so I met him through Slow Food. And we clicked and he told me what he was up to. And I was like, oh, I, I actually know a lot about cider. And um, he's like, okay, well, why don't you come by? And we just got to talking and I started doing his early fermentations before there was a virtue cider. We were just fermenting in a basement in Carboy's, a little hand crank press. And things went really well. And he hired me on as a cider maker and as a head cider maker. 
Um, and I helped grow that, that business until I, you know, for five or six years. And then I, I left to, to come over to Angry Orchard. What would you say has been like the biggest change in the cider world since you started? Hmm. That's a good question. It feels like it's, it's constantly changing. Um, I think it's such a dynamic industry with so much to offer. And there's so many different in America, of course, there's, there's a million different styles. So that part is just like, so is always rapidly changing. I think right now, what we're starting to see is this just this very blurred line between what cider is and what other drinks are. So we start to see sort of cider and seltzer kind of looking the same right now. We're starting to see, I mean, cider with added fruit is certainly what people are really talking about right now. When I first started with Virtue, we weren't talking about that stuff. And in fact, we completely refused to do anything like that. And now if you're not making fruit cider, then you're then you're kind of behind. And so I think what's happening out in the sort of national market is this trend to kind of call it constant innovation, new flavors all the time. I think that's challenging to traditional cider making, which is fine. We you know, it's good to be dynamic. It's good to have challenges. It's good to appeal and bring in people from all different walks of life. But, you know, speaking as someone that really cares about traditional cider making, that can be hard. And so we, um, we're always trying to tie things back to what cider really is, which of course you and I know is fermented apples. And so making sure that that's always part of the story as things change and as we have to adapt to those changes, it's always important that the apple is, is is the first part of the story that that we're always driving that story. Otherwise, we sort of lose the we lose the soul. In terms of innovation and the trends that we see, um, you know, at the moment on the market with uh, towards like um, you know, drinks with functional benefits that are becoming more and more popular. Is there something that you guys can play in that space, knowing that uh, you know apple can be considered as a superfood with you know, contain like a lot of elements, you know, good for the brain health and uh, the skin health and and so on. Or is it a difficult uh, space for you? <laughs> you can't really say that from a legal perspective. Correct. <laughs> yeah, no, from a claim standpoint. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so when it comes to alcohol, it's it gets a little more strict on what you can say. So, you know, is it interesting to look at those functional benefit opportunities? I think it is for sure. And some of those things are you know, there's taste implications and aroma implications. And so um, if we can find things that people consider functional benefits that we can add to a cider that advance that cider in some way, then I think it's interesting. I've definitely been in a place where I would say no way to any of those kinds of things. My early, uh, early like early moments in my career, I would reject. And if it wasn't apples or pears, absolutely not. No way we're not doing it. And I stayed that way through beginning at Angry Orchard, just really rejecting that stuff. But then I worked on a lot of projects that, you know, started to bring fruit in or other character in. But I found a way to balance it and make it about cider. We, we, we used to have a cider that we called the old fashioned and we would, and this was in the, this was in the national market. We fermented it with, uh, well, we fermented it and then we blended with oak chips. Um, well, we let it rest on oak chips and there was cherries in it and orange peel 
And it was very much like an old-fashioned cocktail. And I love cocktails. And I find a lot of inspiration in cocktails. So we sort of thought, how could we play in this space, do something cool that we really, that we can stand by, and also, you know, make something fun and interesting for our drinkers. And so it was still a cider first and foremost, but then it had, you know, like I said, it had some oak in it. So you sort of had that traditional cider element of aging in oak. And we brought in fruit in a way that was complimentary and not overpowering. And so I always try to think about things that way. How can we make cider front and center? And then we can do some things on the side to, you know, spark people's interest, to bring people in, and then also get the opportunity to be like, okay, cool. Well, if you like this cider with these other things in it, you know, also make sure you try, you know, the cider without anything in it. It's an opportunity to educate people and, and bring more people to the category. Absolutely. And, and you definitely can play, and you were mentioning this about the, the different variety of, um, you know, of, of apple. Talking about this, uh, what is your favorite uh, terroir for bittersweet apple for cider making? It depends. We're really getting into learning what's great here in the U.S. I think probably the best bittersweet apples being grown in the country right now are up in New Hampshire by Steve Wood, who has a, his own label called Farnham Hill. His orchard is Poverty Lane. He and a, and some group and a group of orchardists there have been really honing their skills in the orchard around bittersweet for you know decades now and i buy a lot of fruit from that area and it's some of the like most robust bittersweet apples that i can get my hands on in the u.s and it, very much like a, a of english character most of the varieties are english and so i really when i make a cider from that fruit that's probably my most favorite cider of the year and we use it across a, a bunch of different labels, a bunch of different brands that we make. I think that we're really starting to get going in Walden. So we're really trying to understand what's going to work well there. I definitely look to the Finger Lakes north of us for fruit, although most of the fruit I'm buying out of there is sort of the higher acid variety, less bittersweet, more sharp, um, really great area for growing sharp, sharp apples. And then, you know, I mean, I think it's probably obvious that I have a, a special place in my heart for the West of England, uh, equally in France. And I think, in Norm you know, in Spain, Norm Normandy or Norman Brittany Normandy. In yeah. And, yeah. And Brittany. And we, we buy a lot of fruit from from that area, from Brittany. So I definitely um, love to drink the ciders, the bittersweet ciders of there. And I mean, to a lesser extent, because bittersweet is less of a, a component of the cider making. But in Spain. I also, you know, the the bittersweet that is grown there, I really enjoy. And I think actually right now, for me, drinking cider in Spain is is probably my favorite place to drink cider. What is the region in Spain where they grow uh, they grow um, bittersweet apple? In Asturias. Oh, um, in Asturias. Okay. Yep, and to some extent in the Basque region too, but mostly mostly Asturias. The Basque will use a lot of apples, you know, French apples. Where in Asturias, mm -hmm. you're you're more likely to have cider that's made from apples grown there how do you um you work directly with um you know with the apple growers and how do you identify even like new varietals you know for for innovative product so i it's a mission of mine for since i've been in this industry to get you know bittersweet fruit planted in the ground it's been met with a you know pushback to some extent it's a little bit easier to get that fruit in the ground i mean on our own property of course we can plant it uh, with reckless abandon, and we do. Um, but in 
you know, in, it, when we work with growers in different parts of the country, it's all about making, you know, you're essentially having to make contracts, you know, making agreements to buy the fruit over the long term. And so we, we work with growers who are, you know, interested in, you know, diversifying their business that see an opportunity in the cider industry as a growing industry that they want to be a part of. You know, what the reality on apples, like eating apples in America is, it isn't really an industry that grows. People, every year, people eat about the same amount of apples. And so if someone wants to diversify their business in apple growing, um, cider is a great way to get involved. And you'll see, you'll see, you know, a lot of people starting their own cider businesses. In fact, in New York State, where we are, we, we have the most cider makers um, of any state in the union. And then out in the, in the West Coast is right, right behind in, in Washington, in Oregon. And so where there are apples, there are opportunities for growers to, you know, diversify and growing and selling bittersweet apples to people that want to buy them like me is another way to diversify a business. And so it's gotten easier over time to, you know, convince people to get involved. And, you know, what we're seeing year on year in the U.S. is that the nurseries that grow bittersweet apples are sold out every year. So more and more of this fruit is going into the ground. And I think more and more we'll see it represented in our in our cider as an industry in the U.S., which is really exciting. So let's talk about the use of uh, cider in uh, cocktail and food pairing. You said sure. that, uh, you know, you, you, you love cocktails. So c cider could be a great element in, in cocktail making. So do you have any suggestion for people at home to make, I don't know, like two examples, maybe a great cocktail a recipe using maybe different type of your Angry Orchard product? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would probably like, speak more generally to cider making sure. cocktail, cider pairing cocktails, because what I think is is great about cider in a cocktail is it can kind of anytime you see sparkling wine, it can replace that. So if any of your listeners have a favorite cocktail that has a, a sparkling white wine in it, you know, take out the Prosecco and put in a dry sparkling cider. It's really going to complement the drink. You know, it lowers the ABV a little bit, which I appreciate. I think you know, I like, um, there's a traditional cocktail in the U.S., one of the first cocktails, maybe the first cocktail, I think that's disputed, called the Stone Fence. And you would have cider, your choice of spirit, probably, you know, in, in most cases, rum, you know, in early America on the East Coast, we didn't quite have bourbon here yet. So, you know, you throw in some rum, maybe a little bit of vermouth and some bitters. And it's very simple, sort of equal parts. and not equal parts bitters, a dash of the bitters <laughs> and over, over, a, a you know, stir and then throw over a rock, um, you know, a big rock in a, in a rocks glass. And I really, I really like that um, particular cocktail. It's such a diverse drink. It's hard to say which ciders. So when I think about that kind of a drink, like a heavier, bigger, bolder drink, something that would have rum in it and some bitters, I'm thinking something that has bittersweet in it to kind of stand up to that. I'd probably pick, if I was looking at Angry Orchard, it's available to everybody. Um, our unfiltered cider is like a, is a really good cider to throw in the mix for, for that kind of a drink. And then, yeah, when it comes to uh, sort of lighter, more effervescent sparkling, you know, I, I would say find your, your favorite dry sparkling cider. And um, we make one out of a, an apple called Newtown Pippin, which is a, a cider we make year on year. We, we, we vintage it. It's really straightforward. It's dry. It has a little bit of fermentation character in it, and we use that in, in cocktails now. So uh, uh, something like that would be great. Okay. 
And when it comes to food, what kind of food pairs mm -hmm. well with a uh, cider? Jeez, it's such, you know, like I said, it, it's such a robust category. Cider can be so many things, which is why I love it. It's just sort of endless. And, you know, everywhere I go, there's someone making cider in a different way with a different taste profile. So I really feel like cider has its own unique opportunity at the table all the time. One of the things I really love about it, um, like with the with the cocktail that I mentioned, I like that it's a little bit lower in ABV than wine, yet when you find the right cider, you can get exactly what you get out of wine when it comes to pairing with food and you get it at half the alcohol. And so, you know, when I want to cook and eat with my friends, which is something I so yearn to do right now, um, <laughs> in, the, in this time where we, yeah. you know, it's not even safe to go to a restaurant, which I can't believe I just said that. It's just such an awful thing to even think about. When I can't even, you know, it's not even comfortable to have friends over to cook. But when I can, um, you can be certain that cider will be on my table. And what, what cider allows us to do is imbibe a little bit more, enjoy it a little bit longer. Some people might say, well, you just drink twice as much. And yeah, maybe. But I hope that that means that you are at the table twice as long and that you are around your food and your friends a little bit longer. And I really, I, I, and I'm not saying that as a cider salesman. I'm saying that I, I really believe that. It's something that I that I really appreciate about cider. And so when I think about actually pairing it with food, I could pair it with anything. I just have to find the right cider. So if I'm cooking, you know, if I'm starting out a meal, I'm probably looking for a drier cider. Like I mentioned, our Newtown Pippin, something similar to that, maybe that has a little bit of Lee's character. You know, you have that in the beginning of the meal, either with um, seafood or oysters or, oh, man, that just made me want to be in Brittany and Concal eating oysters and drinking cider. I would kill for that right now. You know, so a, a lighter, drier cider to start out a meal. I, it's also nice to cook with. I do a dish where, I, you know, I cook you know, sort of clams and chorizo and fresh herbs. And we, you know, cook that over the fire with, with cider as a base. You know, it's the same place that you might have seen white wine before or, you know, you see sour beer. It sort of plays in that same, that same venue. Um, and then as things get bigger and bolder at the table... You know, bittersweet cider is is where I is where I go. If I want to um, to serve like uh, or to eat like a, a cheese plate, what you know with a cider, what kind of cheese should I should I put mm. on the, on the board? Yeah, I think to, if I was going to be starting a meal with cheese, I definitely go with a lighter cider. I'm going to go with something that is you know either effervescent or not. You know, high, higher in acidity, so I'm probably going to want a lighter lighter softer and even creamy cheese creamy cheese on baguette um, and then maybe some pieces of you know just softer cheese it's all about preference on the cheese side but i think if you if you go to this if you want to have cider and cheese tonight you go to your cheesemonger you go to the store and you look for some softer and creamier cheeses to pair with your cider but then if you're You know, if you're having cider or you're having cheese later on, it's sort of like a, a bigger, bolder, like a blue cheese at the end of a meal, um, then things, you know, can get a little more interesting. I think there's certainly ice cider, which I which I love to pair there. I also would look at, you know, the sort of typical French cider that has some sweet, some residual sugar in it would be really nice to have towards the end of a meal with a bigger, bolder cheese. Okay. You, t you you use an expression. You use the the term like ice cider. Can mm -hmm. you explain what it is? Sure. So 
Ice cider is like ice wine. Um, we're concentrating, concentrating the juice. Um, it can be done in a couple different ways. Some people do leave the, the apples on the tree and freeze the apples that way. That's, as far as I know, only done in Canada, but it might be in other European countries, maybe further north. But in the US, it doesn't get cold enough to do that. So there's that. You can leave them on the trees, the apples freeze, and then you press the apples and get the juice off. Where it's a little bit less cold, where I am, we will press the juice into apples. Or I'm sorry, press the juice into apples. Press the apples into juice and and we'll put it outside in in totes. And it'll freeze, the juice will freeze and thaw, freeze and thaw. And then what happens eventually is, you know, the sugar and the, the water freezes, but the sugar doesn't. And so we can drain the sugar off, leaving most of the water behind. So we get um, a juice that is much higher in sugar when we start to ferment it. So we get much higher alcohols. And then typically you, you know, you arrest the fermentation somewhere around, you know, you have an ice cider that's somewhere around 11, you know, somewhere between 10 and 12% alcohol. Um, So it's meant to be had sort of at the end of the meal. It's definitely sweet. It's a dessert drink, but, you know, so you can have it with, I mean, basically anything. I mean, you could drink it with foie gras. It's unbelievable. Have it with blue cheese. It's, you know, life-changing. So, yeah. So maybe it's a, it's a stupid question, but you were mentioning that, um, you know, ciders made from apple could be from pear. Have anyone tried it? And I don't know even if it's possible, but tried with quince? Yes. Yeah. There are people making cider with quince. I have never done it. And we okay. actually... Not for a lack of trying. We did try to get some quince last year. You know, I mentioned earlier, we, we try to find, if we're going to do something other than apples or pears, then we try to work with growers, you know, locally. And we, we did find some people that were growing quince, but it's such a hard fruit to get your hands on if you're not growing it yourself. We, we weren't able to get enough to, to really do anything with it. But I am definitely interested. And there are mm-hmm. commercial examples of quince cider out in the world. Okay, I do know that. Okay. Okay, so th- thank you very much for your time. I'm, I'm going to finish the, um, the interview with a, a quick series of rapid-fire questions. Okay. So um, the first one is, how was your experience with uh, Zac Efron on the Netflix series <laughs> Down to Earth? Uh, it was good. It was fun. We had, a, we had a really good time. Good to introduce them to the world of cider. Okay. That was very fast, though. Um, you know, I watched, the uh, obviously, the episode and... Uh, yeah. Um, and I'm like, okay, okay, yes, great, 6,000 varieties of apple, okay, yeah. but then I want to know more about cider. So Yeah, well, <laughs> the thing was that, you know, well, Zach doesn't drink, so that was part of okay. the reason. Okay, and, got it. And so I think the show is like mostly focused on sort of health and right. Um, right. healthy yep. ingredients and that kind of thing. So they were more interested in the apple part of it than the cider part of it. Despite, trust me, I tried, but uh, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't taking it. <laughs> no, but I learned something. I didn't know that uh, they were always uh, five uh, seeds in an apple. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So in all the 6,000 different varieties of apple, it's, uh, there's only five seeds. Yep. And okay. what's well, interesting about the seeds is that they don't grow the same variety, right? So if you plant you take an apple you cut it in half you take the seeds out you plant the seeds they're not going to grow the same apple 
that you had taken the seeds from. Um, and so there, for apples to maintain their variety, it, it, human intervention is necessary. So we have to we have to graft those trees. So you take a piece of a tree and put it on the rootstock and create a new tree. That's how we maintain uh, varieties. Okay. I learned something else too, is that uh, I didn't know the genome was the apple was, uh, we're able to try, trace it back to Kazakhstan. To Kazakhstan, uh, yeah. And, yeah, I didn't know that. And <laughs> so, I, see, I, actually, I, learned, I learned two things. <laughs> I, a couple a couple years ago, I was able to go to Kazakhstan and go oh, cool. out to the, to the apple. You know, they're not apple orchards, they're apple jungles where every variety is different than the one next to it. It's pretty mind-blowing. And it's, you know, millions of acres through on the border of China near the, you know, at, at the Tian Shan Mountains. Um, and you, you yeah. know, look around, you all you can see is apple jungle for as far as you could possibly imagine. It's um, oh, wow. pretty wild, pretty wild. So where in the world have you made cider? I've made cider in New York. Um, I've made cider in Michigan, Colorado. Spain. I've made cider in England quite a few times. Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Yeah, quite, not in quite a few, not, probably not some in, other places. Not in France? I don't think I... I, oh, ta okay. I have drunk a lot of cider in France. I've tasted sure. a lot of cider. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I've, I, I've, I've done a lot with cider in France, but I've never fermented an apple in France. Okay. What's your favorite food to pair with cider? Yeah, I think my answer is always cheese. There are two worlds that I love to explore. Cheese and cider has just like brought me to all these different places around the world. It's brought me to so many different people. And I love finding ways to combine them. And so often where the great cider is, also the great cheese is. So when I'm having the two of them together, I'm either in one of those places or I'm remembering a time I was in one of those places or I'm looking forward to being in one of those places and with those kind of people. And so I just, it just, there's nothing better for me than finding the right cider and the right cheese. Okay. I mean, something that I definitely learned listening to you before where you were talking about pairing with cheese is I would never have thought about pairing a cheese, for instance, with a, uh, sorry, a, a cider with a creamy cheese. You know, oh, yeah. I always have like hard paste, you know, like in mind, but um, so I have to try that. Yeah. yeah. What would you have you done professionally if not making cider <laughs> i would have been a lawyer i was trying to be a lawyer but i okay well i wasn't really trying i was going to law school <laughs> and i was trying to do something else and uh what i didn't know was that it would be cider but um i'm glad that that's what's happened but had it not happened uh i probably would be a lawyer right now and i gotta tell you okay. i'm i'm very glad that i'm not <laughs> exactly it's much more fun making cider I guess. yeah <laughs> i thought you would have said something about music because i thought that you were well, um you know in I, music right it's yeah music. well if i was i wanted to my dream job would have been in music yeah um but okay. my reality would have been in law <laughs> okay okay I understand it's probably not an easy question, but maybe what comes to your mind, top of mm. top of minds, what do you predict will be the biggest trend insider in the coming years? Mm. Probably it's going to be lower ABV, around 5%. It'll be probably sparkling, which is good. So when I think about it that way, I'm thinking um, sessionable, dry, sparkling cider. Probably it'll fill kind of like a hard sparkling water uh, space, you know, so we'll probably see something like that with 
um, other flavors added, those kinds of things. So I think hard sparkling water, whether you like it or not, is is what most people are drinking in America these days. So I think we'll see, and we already are starting to see the beer category playing in that space. And and there are some commercial examples of sort of similar ciders. So I think that will continue on pace to be uh, something that people are interested in. Although I will say the it all comes back around. And so I hope that we're able to bring people closer to what I believe is a traditional cider um, in the future. Okay. Close to your heart. Okay, yeah. great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate spending the, that you spend the time with us today and uh, be on the show Flavors Unknown. Yeah, I'm happy, happy to do it. That was fun, fun to get to talk to you. Um, look forward to talking to you again, and hopefully it'll be over a cocktail or a cider or, or just about anything. Exactly. <laughs> a, a, plate, a plate of cheese with a, yeah. with a glass of cider. Definitely, yeah. we need to do that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I want to thank Ryan Burke, Head Cider Master at Angry Orchard, for sharing his passion about cider making, and I hope Ryan gave you the inspiration to start exploring the cider category and do some tasting and food pairing with cider. To discover all the previous chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists who were the previous guests on the show, and find the show notes of this episode, go to flavorsunknown.com. And please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and follow us on Instagram at Flavors Unknown. My next guest will be mixologist Bob Peters, one of Charlotte's most influential mixologists. Bob has strong southern roots and won numerous awards in the mixology world. I see you in two weeks, and until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.